walking from this room to that room. This morning, as Frank said, we're focusing on the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. If you're new to the Bible, Matthew is the very first book in the New Testament. Because Matthew and then Mark and Luke and John, those are called the Gospels. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 21. And today what we're going to do is we're going to remember an event. A unique event, but this unique event sounds like a lot of other stories. It's a story of an obscure man who came from an unimportant place, and the famous men in the important place got jealous. This obscure man came riding a wave of popular acclaim. He caught everyone's attention. The important men confronted this man, and this man showed them to be the fools that they were. The important men decided to get rid of the obscure man, so they contacted a friend of the obscure man, and that man betrayed him for a price because everyone has a price. The obscure man was detained by the authorities, tried, and killed. And the crowds that once shouted themselves hoarse for this obscure man were silent. This is a common story. It's one that's been told. This isn't a story about William Wallace. Today we're going to talk about Jesus Christ. You see, what sets this story off as unique is not so much the details of the story, but the details or the uniqueness of the man. The man at the center of the story is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. These things that we're about to read, they really happened. They're real. But our focus this morning is going to be on Him. And as we look at Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see a king. We're going to see a king who does things his way, not the way people expect. We're going to see this king who comes and confronts people and says, I'm going to do things my way, and I'm going to do, ways, do things in ways you might not expect. And so our call this morning is to take our place amongst the crowd and be on the outskirts of the crowd and focus on Jesus and watch Jesus and look at Jesus and gaze at Jesus. And see that he is the king who does things his way, in his time, in my life and your life. So let's read. I'm going to read God's word beginning in Matthew chapter 21, verse 1. All eyes on Jesus now. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is 
this. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, we know that the way you speak to us today is not primarily through subjective impressions, but through your word. And Lord, we need you to speak to us. We've just heard your word read. I pray that you would help us to listen and hear as your word is preached. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be active amongst all of us so that we might not just hear, but we might encounter you. And so, Lord, that's what we need. We need to encounter you, all of us. Every single one of us, in our own way, needs to encounter you. And I pray that we would do that, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Jesus, the Nazarene, the Galilean, the one who's at the center of this story, lived for about 33 years. And the last three years of his life, what was called his earthly ministry, he went about preaching and teaching and healing, and doing miracles, and calling people back from the dead. But the four gospel writers spend most of their time talking about the last week of the life of Jesus on earth. You'll notice here in Matthew that the triumphal entry is in Matthew chapter 21. The book ends in Matthew chapter 28. So a full one quarter of this book is dedicated to the last week in the life of Jesus. If you'll read others, it's similar. John is half of the book. And so these gospel writers are trying to get our attention and say, focus on this part because this is the most important part. And so we begin joining with the crowd, walking into Jerusalem as Jesus makes an announcement. This is what's going on. First, we see his announcement. Now, Jesus doesn't say much in this passage, but his actions are shouting something very particular. It may not be obvious to us, but this is a royal announcement. The entry into Jerusalem by Jesus is an announcement of arriving royalty. Now, we Americans may not be used to royalty unless we're talking about Burger King or Dairy Queen or White Castle, We don't think much about, we have royal food, I suppose. We don't think much about royalty, but we understand the trappings of power, right? We understand the trappings of power. Monarchs have thrones and crowns and scepters and rings and castles. Countries that are maybe a representative republic, they have Air Force One, the presidential seal. They have songs like Hail to the Chief, the Oval Office, Secret Service, all of, <clears throat> all, of us under, <clears throat> all of us understand the trappings of power. Each of them say, I am in charge. Now, Jesus is saying the same thing as he arrives on this donkey. At the beginning, what he does is he sends two disciples into a village to get this donkey and her foal or her, her baby and bring it to him. Now, Caesar would arrive to Rome astride a magnificent charger with a sword and a shield and a retinue of soldiers behind him. And after those soldiers, captives and spoil from the great conquest that he had gone about, Jesus instead is making his royal announcement very differently. Look at verse 5. 
Matthew roots what Jesus is doing in the words of a prophet that had gone before, a prophet named Zechariah. Verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's fulfilling prophecy. Now, it's a unique kind of prophecy. What Jesus is doing as he rides in on this donkey is he's telling Jerusalem and all the pilgrims that are walking in to him to to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, he's walking in saying, I am your long-awaited Messiah. Here I am. I'm coming. The one that Zechariah told you about 500 years before, the one Isaiah told you about 700 years before, the one Moses told you about before we entered the promised land, the one that we see in Genesis chapter 3, that one has now arrived. Jesus is announcing his kingship on the back of that donkey. But Jesus is also announcing that he's going to be a different kind of king. He's going to be a different kind of king than anyone expected. Now, we get a hint of this in his mode of transportation. Typically, donkeys were used to bear burdens. And so people would walk alongside their donkeys and tie ropes to their donkeys and put their belongings on the back of a donkey and then walk with donkeys in tow. No one really rode donkeys. It would be the equivalent of, well, like, you know, let's say President Biden comes to town and he he has a motorcade. And in that motorcade, we see a number of SUVs, black, speeding around town. And they're tinted windows. And they all look the same. And they, they, they drive together in close quarters. The streets that they go on are all closed. And so anybody who's standing by can look and see, there goes somebody who's important. Jesus is indicating something similar, but it's a surprising way that he does this. What he does is he rides on a donkey. Actually, the text tells us he rides on the back of the baby donkey. Now, if there's anything less impressive than a donkey, it's a baby donkey. And this is who Jesus is riding on. This would be the equivalent of Jesus hopping in the back of a rusted-out 1985 Ford Ranger and sitting in the back of that pickup truck. Now, if anybody sees that on the roads in Gilbert, no one's going to say, man, there goes somebody important right there. Everybody's going to say, that guy's going to probably die. That's dangerous. But Jesus is saying, I am arrived. Because he's he's following what what, uh, Zechariah had said. He's coming. The king is arriving in a way that they didn't expect. Now, they knew that the king would arrive this way, but what they thought was once he got into Jerusalem, he was going to pull out the sword, and he was going to start start subduing his enemies. He was going to start fighting for Israel. He was going to start the process of releasing Jerusalem from the yoke of slavery under Rome. Every person on that road and every person in Jerusalem in that day had an expectation of what Messiah should be. Messiah for them was not someone gentle, meek, and mild. Messiah for them was a conqueror, was a, was a fighter, was a soldier. Messiah for them was, a, was someone who was going to set all things right. Their Messiah was going to throw off Roman oppression and exalt 
Jerusalem, and he was going to take his place on a throne in that city, and no longer would the nations put Israel under their feet. They would in turn be subdued by this Messiah. That was their expectation, that kind of king. And we can get an example of this in some of the rabbinic literature, some of the Jewish teachers of the day. Here's here's what people expected. Here's kind of an example. Here's what they're calling on the Lord to do. See, O Lord, and raise up their king for them, a son of David. For the proper time that you you see, go to rule over Israel your servant, and undergird him with strength to shatter unrighteous rulers. Cleanse Jerusalem from the nations that trample in its destruction to expel sinners from the inheritance in wisdom, in righteousness, to rub out the arrogance of the sinner like a potter's vessel, to crush all their support with an iron rod, to destroy lawless nations by the word of his mouth, for the Gentiles to flee from his face at his threat, and to reprove sinners by the word of their hearts. And he will gather a holy people whom he will lead in righteousness, and he will judge the tribes of the people sanctified by the Lord its God. So do you see what they expected? They, they expected Jesus to come and to crunch Rome. They expected him to come. He might have been on the back of a donkey, but when he got off, he was about to take names, and he was about to do justice. He was about to rub out the arrogant. He was about to crush the enemies. He was about to break the pot of Rome. He was about to destroy the lawless nations. He was about to reprove sinners. He was about to fight with his mouth. That was their expectation. That was what they expected Jesus to do as Messiah. But he didn't. Not in that way, at least. They had an idea of what he should do and who he should be. But they didn't think that, and they couldn't conceive of Messiah doing or being something different than their expectation. They didn't read Zechariah closely. Look at verse 5 again. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble. Humble. He came in humility. They had no idea who Messiah... They they didn't know... They thought they knew what the Messiah was to do, but crucifixion didn't factor into this equation. (laughs) They thought he would be king in the way they expected. They were expecting to define the terms of his kingdom, and they did not expect Jesus to define his own terms. And they would be disillusioned when on Friday, instead of ascending to a throne, he would be lifted to a cross. Instead of being coronated, he would wear a crown of thorns. Instead of being celebrated, he would be mocked. Instead of being clothed in royal garments, he would be stripped and strung up. Instead of dispatching his enemies, his enemies would get the best of him. And they didn't understand why. It's easy. It's easy to come to Jesus with a set of expectations and say, this is how I think you must work. And that's what they were doing. They hoped in a political salvation. It's easy to hope in a political salvation. 
The problem's always out there with other people. It's not here with me. But Jesus' kingship is much more demanding. It's much more significant. Jesus has come to give freedom, not from oppression, from political oppression, but from sin and death. What the people didn't realize is that they were captive. They were held captive to sin, and they were already under the sentence of death. And Jesus came to rescue them from that. Jesus came to experience the wrath of God for sin so that sinners might be able to come to him in safety. He would be conquered so that by being conquered, we might not be conquered either by sin or death. But that's not what they expected. He was defining the terms of his kingship, and we need to let him do the same as well. See, sometimes what we do as followers of Jesus is tell him what he needs to do for us and define how he must work in our lives. We can say, Jesus, you're king, absolutely. You're sovereign, most definitely. You're in charge, unquestionably. And this is what it needs to look like for me. You need to make me happy or fix my husband, or make my kids obey, or give me a good night's sleep, or find me a wife. Take away this hardship. And what we need to remember is that he is king, and he does things his way. He does things his way, and in his time, even with all of us. You see, the Jesus we serve has to be free to be the Jesus of the Bible. If the Jesus we serve never contradicts us, we have to ask ourselves, are we serving the real Jesus? If the Jesus we serve never challenges us against, for the bitterness that we hold against other people, for the anger that flares up on a regular basis, for those secret things that we give into all the time, we have to ask ourselves, are we following? Are we following a king, or are we asking the king to adapt to us? So do you have a plan that Jesus is meant to fit into for you, or are you content to let Jesus do what he will with you? to use the the language of our passage, will you let Jesus be king on his terms? It remains to be seen about the crowd. I'll give you a hint. They don't, but that's later. We've seen his announcement, and now we see the response. Now we see the response. The crowd knew what he was saying. They knew Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And so we read their response. Look at verse 8. Most of, them, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. This is the red carpet treatment in first century Palestine. And the, the crowds that went before him and the crowds fought, that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, which just means save us now. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. You see, they knew he was king. They knew it. 
And they were all coming into Passover. They were all coming to Jerusalem for Passover. And this was a high, this was a time of great excitement on a regular, every year, annually. But this was specifically exciting for these pilgrims. Because Jesus is saying, look at me, I'm king. And they got swept up in this excitement. And so they cut the palm branches. You ever wonder why people wave palm branches? It was, it was, a, it was a, a Jewish way of, of anticipating the way in which the Messiah would restore all things, even all of nature. Isaiah 55, 12 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And so when you get two palm branches and put them together like that, it's kind of an anticipation of what will happen one day when the Messiah makes all things right. And the trees respond by clapping their hands. And the hills shout with joy. And the mountains sing of what God has done in Christ. And so these people are thrilled at this. They're thrilled because their time has come. They're waving and they're clapping palm branches together, and they're saying, the great day that we've looked forward to is here. It's here. And they're saying, Hosanna. It's an Aramaic word which means save us now. As I said, save us now. Son of David, save us now. Son of David, you've seen the oppression that we've Born up under with Rome, save us now. You heard in Egypt when the people groaned under the yoke of slavery, you saved them. We groan under the yoke of slavery to Rome. Hosanna, save us now. You see all the injustice that we bear up under. Hosanna, save us now. You see that we have an unrighteous king on the throne pushing us around. Hosanna, save us now. And this is what they were calling. And this raucous crowd got the town's attention. Look at verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, at this time, during Passover, Jerusalem could swell to about the size, 250,000 people, which is about the size of, of Gilbert. Now, Gilbert, Arizona lies on what amounts to essentially 50 square miles. We have 250,000 people or so in 50 square miles. In Jerusalem, they had 250,000 people in 425 acres, or one square mile. And so people are on top of people. And so when Jesus and this retinue comes into town shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David. When they come in with those words, those aren't words that people go, huh, hmm, that's interesting. Those are words that, gets, that get people stirred up, that sends shockwaves through the city. And that's what happened. People clamored to know who he was. And they said, who is this? 
And the crowds answered, This is the prophet, Jesus, from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, Jerusalem was in the south. Nazareth in Galilee is in the north. And that's where the Hicks lived. That's where the, the people who were uneducated and had strange accents lived. That's where, that's where people who didn't know much lived. And here, this Hick from Nazareth has, has tumbled into town. And people are calling him a prophet. Now, this is the highest honor that could be bestowed on any person. A prophet, like Hosea, we've been going through, speaks, is commissioned by God to speak for God for the people. But the difference is that Jesus, is Jesus a prophet? Yes. But he wasn't just commissioned to speak on behalf of God. He spoke as God to the people. And he didn't just speak. He came to be the servant king. So let's start to put some of this together in the brief time that we have left. We said Jesus is announcing, I am king. And we see the crowd's response saying, save us now, and that he's a prophet. So the problem is, they thought they needed salvation, political salvation, as we've said, and they didn't really know who he was. It was good to call him a prophet, but insufficient. It's the same kind of thing. Maybe you're here, and you have great respect for Jesus. That's good. Maybe you regard him as a good man, or even the best of men. And you give him respect. You listen to what he has to say when you read the Bible. But here's the difference. If Jesus is king... He's not just worthy of your respect. He's worthy of your unquestioned allegiance. See, when we respect somebody, we can just stand at a distance and say, that's a good man, or that's a good woman. Or there's a lot about them that I find compelling. Or they have a lot of good things to say. But you can't take Jesus like that, though. That's not how it works with Jesus. Jesus coming into town on a donkey, on the baby donkey, he's coming into town saying, I am king. What do you do with kings? What do you do with this king? You don't just stand on the side and say, I respect you. You either serve him or you reject him. And that's our call this morning. He, it's not enough for us to say he's a good man or a prophet or even the best of men. What we must do is recognize that this is a man unlike any other. We can't stand at a distance and merely respect him. He is the unquestioned king of the universe, and we must give him our allegiance and our worship because he's king. And giving him our allegiance and our worship is more than just a matter of doing religious duties. More than praying prayers or going to confession. It's giving him all you are. 
And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, what you need to understand is that when the crowds called, Hosanna, save us now, even though they meant save us from the political oppression of Rome, Jesus would save them better than they knew they needed. Jesus would save them from their sins. He would die as a substitute on a Roman cross and pay, literally pay in his body, the price of the wrath of God against him personally. So that any who trust in him can know that that man, Jesus Christ, he died like a criminal, but he was raised from the dead like the king he is. That's what it means to follow him. We follow him, and what do we have to bring? We have nothing to bring, just sin. He takes all that are willing. So if you're here and not following Jesus, he doesn't want your respect. He doesn't want your admiration. He wants your allegiance. He wants you to know he's the king. And we must submit to him. Now, that might sound harsh. That might sound tough. That might sound difficult. Here we are, here I'm saying, and I think this is reflected in Scripture, I know it is, that we have to submit in every way to him. He is in every way our ruler. In every way he is in authority over us. In every way he is our king. And you might think, that sounds a little harsh. I want to point something out to you about verse 5. Something that's easy to skip over. I, we talked about it briefly, but I want to talk about it for just a few moments here as we close. Look at verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, which is just another way of saying to Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you humble. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Now, have you ever thought, why does it matter that Jesus is humble? How many leaders in our world are humble? Are the people who hold power and take power and abuse power, are they humble? No. But why would Zechariah say, here's Jesus, the king of all the universe, he's humble? Now, humility in our days is a synonym for weakness. But this isn't it here. That's not what we're after. Humility is the strength to trust God above all things. To trust God even more than yourself. So you know who you are. So why does it matter that Jesus is humble? This is what, this is, if you're not following Jesus, or even if you are following Jesus, what we need to remember is that we have a humble Savior. And so what difference does that make in our daily lives? It means he's accessible. Somebody who's proud, think about it. Somebody who's proud or haughty, is constantly thinking, I'm better than this category of person. I'm better than that category of person. I'm better than him and her. I don't have time for them. Now these people, they're better than me, so I'm going to make time for them. That's what proud people do. They determine who's at their station, who's above their station, and who's below their station. And they don't interact with people below their station. Above? Sure. But not Jesus. Jesus. 
not Jesus. You see, the proud, they speak to the important and the powerful, the beautiful, the kind, the funny, the wealthy, those that can do something for them. But not Jesus. Jesus comes in humility, accessible to all. And we can see this picture on the back of a baby donkey. A baby donkey. When you go to a petting zoo, ask to see a baby donkey. And they're not going to let you climb on its back. It would be ridiculous. But what is compelling about that picture is that in that picture, we have our Savior showing himself to be accessible. If he came on a, on a white steed with a sword at his side, with golden breastplate, with eyes like a flame of fire, and hair as bright as, as the sun, and he has an army of angels brightly glowing behind him, would he be accessible? Would people say, you know what, I'm going to go up and ask him a question. No, they would cower and fall down. He would be beyond them. But that's not the case with our Jesus. He's humble, riding on a donkey, accessible. There is no one more accessible than Jesus. There is no one more sympathetic to your plight and your weakness and those sins that recur in your life that you hate, there's nobody more sympathetic than him. He stands ready and willing to meet and help anyone. He's that kind of king. It's easy to come to him, in other words. It's easy to go to somebody who's humble. He's never going to say, I told you so. When can you stop? Why aren't you? See, this is where we see our king being something totally different than we would expect. Our king is the king of the universe, and our king deserves ultimate allegiance with no question. Our king is the king of all things, and, and he's humble. Those two things do not go together in our world. The humble are not the powerful, and the powerful are not the humble. But Jesus is not a normal kind of king. So Christians, we need to let Jesus, center church, we need to let Jesus be king over all of our lives, over our sensibilities, over our expectations. If your understanding of Jesus never challenges you where you are weak or sinning, you might not be serving the real Jesus. He's the king. So, if you're not following Jesus, he's easy to come to. All you need to do is come to him with need and, and, and ask for help, and he'll help you. If you are a Christian, you know that. Maybe you need to go to him and ask his forgiveness. Maybe you need to examine those things that you think are most important that you don't have. Maybe you need to look at your frustration and ask yourself, 
Do I, am I laying an expectation on Christ that he doesn't promise to deliver? Or am I saying, I belong to you. I'm yours. Do with me what you will. Because he's king. And I'll guarantee that in all of our lives, what he does with us is not what we expected. It's not. Talk to Christians who've gone before us, who are nearing the end of their race, and every one of them would say, it's wonderful following Jesus, but he didn't do what I expected. That's his right. He's king. He's king. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would help us all, each individually and together, to allow you to be king of our lives. Lord, it's tempting to lay expectations upon you about how you should act or should be or what you should do. Instead of recognizing you are king over all things. And you expressed your kingship most specifically in becoming a ransom for our sins. You expressed your authority by dying, your power by rising again, so that we might be able to have hope everlasting. You are the kind of king that we need, even if you're not the kind of king we expect. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help those here who do not follow you. I pray that they would begin to follow you and take their need to you, knowing that you, as king, can give them hope and a direction. I pray also for those of us who are Christians and are following you, where there are things in our lives that are unsubmitted to you or things that we hold back. I pray that we would come to you and ask forgiveness. And I pray that we would be a people who are submitted to your purposes and your will. That we would be a people who are putty in your hands, saying, do with me what you will, for I am yours. Not, do for me what I say, for you are mine. It's easy to get that backwards, Lord. And forgive us where we have. Lord Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.